The scripture today is Matthew 22:15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So, is it lawful to to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, that was the question. It was a gotcha question. So the Herodians and the disciples of the Pharisees came as a delegation to Jesus to pose a question before him, and the intent was to set a trap for him by asking a question that no matter what he said in response, he'd be in trouble with somebody. So, uh, you know, gotcha question. I mean, we've all heard gotcha questions, especially when... uh, you know, political campaigns heat up, presidential campaigns in particular. And uh, when a reporter or someone in the media has an opportunity to interview a candidate, uh, what they are really hoping for is an opportunity to zing the candidate with a gotcha question so that the candidate is left stumbling or just being all flustered and uh, therefore is disqualified in the eyes of the people uh, from, um, you know, getting the nomination. And this is pretty much what the uh, Herodians and the disciples of the Pharisees were were hoping for, that they'll put this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, if he he says, uh, uh, well, no, I mean, This is not something that good, devout Jews should be doing. This is a blasphemous thing. Um, So if he did that, he'd be popular with all the people and say, well, what a godly man, what a patriot he is. Uh, But he would be arrested for sedition by the Roman authorities. And if he sided with the Romans saying, well, you know, it's not really such a bad thing to be into Roman occupation. I mean, it seems bad, but, you know, we have some advantages here. They, they make excellent roads and the economy is good. So uh, let's just go with it. Well, if he had done that, the Romans would have been happy, uh, but the common people would not have been happy. All of this was a setup. And... Uh, you know, just want to back up a, a, a second. Uh, I, I remember some uh, interesting gotcha questions that have been asked in campaigns in the past. Uh, like um, one campaign, uh, there was a question posed to a candidate. He said, um, uh, sir, could you tell us how much is a quart of milk? And, um, you know, this was a man who had held office as a governor and as a senator and uh, was, you know, well qualified in all respects, but he didn't know the price of a quart of milk in New Hampshire. And so, therefore, you know, his candidacy didn't go 
any further, further than that. I mean, who buys a quart of milk anyway? You buy milk by the gallon, right? I mean, it's just as cheap to buy a gallon of milk as it is a quart of milk. Enough commentary. Um, one of the other questions I remember uh, was somebody in the media asked a candidate, who is the president of Uzbekistan? Well, I mean, a lot of people don't even know that Uzbekistan is a country, much less who the president is. It's uh, Shavkat Mirzov, uh, let's see if I can pronounce his name, Mirzioyev, uh, in case you were wondering. Um, but, I mean, who knows that? But his candidacy didn't uh, proceed any further than that either. And there is one uh, other question that I have heard that surely gets a lot of people to stumble when the um, journalists ask, uh, what is your favorite Bible verse? And if they can't quote a Bible verse, then that is a signal to everyone that uh, you know, they're not really who they say they are. So you know, sometimes when you're watching a courtroom drama on TV, you might hear a TV lawyer throw a gotcha question at a, a witness on the stand it might be an open-ended question, meaning uh, if this is an expert witness, you know, give us your credentials and tell us what you know about the matter that's pertinent to the case and, and so forth. And uh, those are questions that people who know what they're talking about love to answer. But sometimes uh, the attorney will, uh, you know, fire off a, a gotcha question. Um, gotcha questions are almost always, in this case, uh, close-ended. That means answer in one word, like yes or no. And a, a classic gotcha question in a courtroom setting would, would be something like this. Uh, have you stopped beating your wife? You know, answer yes or no. So no matter what you say, uh, yes or no, you're, you're going to be in trouble with somebody. Well, this is what the Herodians and the disciples of the Pharisees uh, were plotting to do. Now, Matthew tells us that these were not the Pharisees, you know, who were the religious experts, the authorities, and, and so forth. These were their disciples, their apprentices. So uh, these would have been teenagers, people in their early uh, 20s, perhaps. Um, but, you know, they're just uh, young people learning the ropes. And uh, so they go out with some other people from the Herodians. And um, remember, this time Jesus is about 33 He's uh, got just a few days left before he's crucified. This is Wednesday before uh, the Friday of the crucifixion. So it's, it's all winding down pretty quickly. So uh, they, they come to him and they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Is this genuine or not? Yeah, absolutely not. You know, Jesus sees uh, you know, right through their, uh, their, their fake flattery. Um, but, but they go on. You know, tell us then what you think. Open-ended question. They're pretending not to trap him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Gotcha. <laughs> you know, whatever you say, you're going to be in trouble. Um, you know, no true Israelite would be willing to pay the tax, um, according to uh, the Pharisees. 
Um, consider the, the, the Roman coin, the, the denarius. If you would um, you know, look at a picture of the coin, uh, there will be an inscription on it uh, that declares uh, Caesar Augustus uh, with all of his titles claiming to be divine. Uh, so it, it's blasphemous. And, and the Jews regarded uh, you know, just having a denarius uh, on your person uh, would, would defile you. Uh, this is why the Pharisees sent their disciples, their apprentices, because the apprentices had not yet taken the oaths of purity that Pharisees had to take. And so uh, the, the, the Pharisees didn't want to be involved with this. They didn't want to come near a denarius. It was evil to them, blasphemous, and so forth. But while they're having this conversation, you know, remember, you know, the denarius was considered to be uh, unholy, as blasphemous, treasonous even. So when, when Jesus calls for a denarius, somebody's got one, uh, indicating maybe they're not as devout and as obedient to their ways as they pretend to be. So <clears throat> Jesus gives the answer. No one expected it. They expected that he would go one way or the other or else, uh, you know, him and Hall and uh, just kind of dance around the issue a little bit and uh, the result, no matter how he answered, uh, he was going to be trapped. But you know, here's what he said. It's a very famous saying. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In the original language, the word that's translated render means to pay what you owe. As in the case, if... Uh, so you take out a mortgage on a house, uh, you have to render the bank or the mortgage company whatever your payment is for, for that month. It's not a gift, it, it is a payment. So um, Jesus is saying, you know, pay Caesar uh, the, the things that are, are owed to him and, uh, and pay to God uh, the, the things that are God's. So... This opens up the door for, uh, I mean, it's a tricky situation that Jesus finds himself in. Um, an ambush has been laid for him. A trap has been set for him. And um, it's in the context here of how do you deal with religion and politics? Let's uh, conclude now by... Uh, I'm out of time. You know. uh, religion and politics is always a, a sticky, a thorny issue, isn't it? But it is part of life. And, uh, you know, Augustine wrote The City of God. Uh, he's talking about the city of man and the city of God, um, um, you know, indicating that we really are citizens of, of two kingdoms, of, of the, you know, the kingdoms that are on earth and the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Martin Luther had his two kingdoms theory. Um, we just celebrated the 4th of July. Uh, so we, we have that in our mind. And I just finished Ecclesiastes and I'm not ready to start uh, a new series, then go on vacation a couple of weeks and then come back to it. So, uh, no. well, you know, no matter how it goes, uh, I'm going to be out of here for several days. So maybe you will have forgotten um, all of the tension that came up and uh, I'll be okay. Um, but what I'm going to do is 
do what Jesus did. And he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And let's try to understand what this means. You know, how do we live politically in this world and the kingdoms of this world, the governments of this world, and at the same time live with our full allegiance to the, the kingdom of heaven? Uh, that's what the passage is about. So we, we need some perspective and uh, let's look a little closer at what Jesus said so that we can understand what he's saying to us. Now, first of all, Jesus says, you know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So uh, the issue here was a matter of the poll tax. Uh, but the principle behind it uh, goes deeper. Jesus is saying, uh, not only do you have an obligation to pay taxes, uh, you have an obligation to be a, a good citizen. So you owe it to your country to be a, a good citizen. And so what does it mean to be a good citizen? A uh, lot of things. I'm just going to mention three. Number one is pay our taxes. Well, isn't that a thrilling, inspiring message to hear when you come to church? And uh, you, you want to be motivated. You want to be inspired uh, by the, the scriptures and by, by the preaching of it. And, and your, your pastor comes and says, pay your taxes. Uh, well, I didn't really say that so much as Jesus said it. This is a sticky issue with a lot of people. Uh, some say they can't pay the taxes they owe because they know that the money that they're paying in taxes is going to support something uh, that they would be opposed to on moral grounds or maybe even philosophical grounds. But Jesus didn't use that logic. He said, your obligation is to pay your taxes. You are ethically responsible for being a good citizen. But you are not culpable for how the government chooses to spend your taxes. And that, that's part of what he is, um, the, the principle that, that he is teaching here when he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Um, I, I refer to the tax being offensive uh, to the Jews in the sense that it, it was blasphemous. Um, but it was offensive uh, in, a, in another way. Um, the Romans had conquered most of that region of the world. And uh, Judea was one of the nations they uh, had annexed into the Roman Empire. And um, it was... A good idea, uh, or so that the Caesar thought to, um, you know, someone's got to fund the uh, Roman occupation of all these provinces that we have annexed. So we're not going to ask our people to pay for that. We'll ask, uh, well, we'll not ask, we'll, we will require uh, the people whom we have conquered to pay a tax to support our army and our political officials who were there. Uh, who were ruling over these conquered people. And that did not set well with the Jews at all. In fact, uh, there, there was a, an archaeologist who discovered a, a denarius, which was the coin that was minted specifically for this purpose. Uh, its worth was uh, um, equal to the, the pay of a Roman soldier or someone who would um, be in, in the workforce. So it, it's a day's pay. 
and uh, that was required of each citizen, each male, age 12 through 65, I mean 14 through 65, and every woman aged 12 through 65. I do not know why uh, girls were taxed two years longer than men. have no idea. Uh, but I'm sure they had a reason for it. But enough of that. <laughs> um, so you think, you know, a day's wage uh, to pay to... You know, those who are ruling over you, that, that may not be that bad. But, you know, it's, it's one of those new taxes or, uh, you know, an additional tax. They already had income tax and property tax and temple tax and custom tax and sales tax and, you know, all kinds of taxes. Oh, by the way, we just had a new tax imposed upon us too, didn't we? So uh, you see how relevant all of this is? So... I mean, we don't have a choice. We, uh, we, we pay what's required of us. Um, you know, there are some taxes the Jews didn't mind paying. There was a temple tax that was in instituted by Nehemiah when they rebuilt the temple. Uh, they needed money to uh, maintain it and, and, and keep it up. And the temple tax was twice what the uh, poll tax was. Um, but nonetheless, um, they despised paying that tax. Speaking of that tax... Uh, you know, who instituted that? Uh, somebody you're familiar with. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That's what it says in the ESV. In the King James, it says, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Taxed, registered, it's the same thing. They were, you know, the poll tax, it comes, the, the, the origin of the word is literally hairs on your head. It came to mean head. Uh, then it came to be an individual. So a poll tax was a tax that was levied upon somebody because he existed or she existed. So uh, that's what they had to register. So you didn't see anywhere where Joseph said to the uh, governmental officials, look, my wife is nine months pregnant and she could deliver any time. And to require us to go from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem with her in that kind of condition, that is unreasonable. Um, I just want to ask that we would be exempt or you would you know, show mercy of some kind, but that was really never part of the discussion. Um, they, they went, um, regardless of the hardships uh, that were involved with that, so that they could... Uh, be registered with the Roman authorities and, and, and pay the, the tax. So, what else do we owe the um, Caesar or the government? Well, uh, first of all, our taxes. Um, the next thing is uh, our prayers. Uh, first of all, then, from 1 Timothy chapter 2, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, we have an obligation to pray for those who are 
in authority over us. So, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's means we have an obligation uh, to be a, a good citizen, which means pay our taxes, pray for our leaders, and uh, I'm not going to take time to uh, talk about the, the next one too much, uh, but it's to obey the laws. So, that makes sense, doesn't it? A good citizen obeys the laws of the land. So, that's what it means to render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, basically, be a good citizen, pay your taxes, obey the laws, pray for your leaders. So, what does it mean to render to God what is God's? What is God's? How do we know what is God's? Now, Jesus doesn't come right out and say it, but the implication is powerful. Now, how did Jesus respond to the question, is it lawful to pay the tax or not? And Jesus said, Bring me a coin, a, a denarius, and you know, somebody brought it to him. And uh, he asked the question, whose inscription is on it? Now, he didn't say when it was time to talk about rendering to God what is God's. He didn't say, you know, bring me something that, is, that, that has the inscription of, of God on it. All they had to do, I mean, this goes all the way back to Genesis, uh, when God said, let us make man in our image. Look at the person next to you, to the left and to the right. Whose image is imprinted on that person? It's, it's God's, isn't it? So you, you look at yourself and you see that, that God's image is stamped on you. You were minted in the image of God. That means What? What belongs to God? You. All of you. Not just 10%, not just, you know, a, a portion, but all of you belongs to God. Now you see what Jesus is doing? The disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians come to him, and they are, of course, looking to ambush him. They are only interested and some of the particulars of the law. They want to know what these guidelines are, and um, they want to make allowances for really nothing. But instead of getting bogged down in those kinds of details, what Jesus does instead is, is, is to say something like this. Look, on the one hand, you need to be a good citizen. Pay your taxes, obey the laws, Pray for your leaders. But for God, it's not a list of things that you do. This is a call to discipleship. This is a call to acknowledge that he owns you, and it is a call to give your life to him. So no wonder the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians were befuddled, and the people who heard this conversation were amazed. See, Jesus brings it all back around. The, the controversy seems to be everything. Jesus says, you know, what's really everything is that you give yourself to God. So, our ultimate allegiance is not to any government. It's not even to our own families because Jesus says he uh, who does not hate father or mother, 
Oh my! For for my sake, uh, cannot be my disciple. He, he's not saying, you know, you you need to hate your father and mother if you're going to follow me. Uh, what he's saying is, your love for me is so strong that in comparison, your love for father and mother will will seem like hate. He's he's using literary devices here to uh, il illustrate just how 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 deep and how extensive uh, the call of discipleship is. So he, he is saying, all of your life belongs to God. Your ultimate allegiance belongs to him. It's not to your nation. It's not to your family. It is to God. And there have been times in history when this has gotten the people of God into trouble. In the Old Testament, these are familiar stories. Uh, remember when the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt? And Pharaoh was concerned that uh, the, the Hebrews were, were multiplying too quickly and they might become so strong that they could overpower the Egyptians. And so he made a decree that all baby boys uh, should be thrown into the Nile. And the Hebrew midwives um, considered what the Pharaoh or Caesar in the context or you know, the president or the king or whatever title you want to give to him uh, to make it seem relevant to us. Uh, there is a higher law. You can only satisfy Caesar if it satisfies God. And throwing your babies into the Nile uh, was not something that, that God would approve of. And so they faced the, the problems that came with that. Uh, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were captives taken to Babylon and they along with Daniel served in uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, court so they had positions of, of high rank and Nebuchadnezzar commanded them uh, whenever you hear the sound of the music uh, list all different kinds of instruments um, you are to bow down and worship the image that I have set up if you don't you'll be thrown into a burning fiery furnace and there is no one who can deliver you from my hand. So threatened with that, what do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? Uh, they choose to observe the principle that Jesus is teaching here. They cannot give to Caesar what rightfully belongs to God, and that is their ultimate allegiance. They can't pretend to bow before or, or pretend to worship when they bow before the image and say, well, what we really uh, believe is that, that God is, is sovereign. Um, but when that act of allegiance is made public, um, that's, what, that's the message that people are, are going to get. So they're thrown into the furnace and uh, the Lord shows up with them. It, it's a great story. Another story involving Daniel, remember him when the Persians overcame the Babylonians and uh, now they are in power and uh, the, the decree goes out, you can't pray to anyone for uh, you know, 10 days except, for, uh, except to the king. And uh, this was a trick, uh, a trap that some of the uh, Persians had set to and trap Daniel because they figured that he would do what he always did and um, you know, pray facing Jerusalem um, as he always did. Uh, again, observing the principle here that 
whatever is required of God must be given only to God. You can't give it to Caesar. Uh, that would not be permissible. And so he faced the consequence. He was thrown into the lion's den. And we know how that story ended. But in the New Testament, there were believers who were also thrown to the lions. That came in the context of Christians in the Roman Empire living out their faith in a way that would honor God and at the same time would um, exemplify good citizenship. And that wouldn't seem to be a problem until those two collide. There, there is a conflict between the two of them. And so here's the, the situation. Uh, what Caesar required, what the Roman government required, is look, we've got a whole pantheon of gods. Anytime the Roman Empire came and conquered a, a nation, that they did something called a god exchange. So uh, they would require the conquered people to worship some of their gods, and they would take some of the gods of um, the people they had conquered and put it in their pantheon, and that way they, they could feel like they're more part of the, the empire. And uh, it's important for us to realize that at, at this point in history, uh, for all of recorded human history, actually, uh, government and God were always tied together. Uh, they, they were pretty much one and the same. So when it was required of the Christians to be good citizens, you know, they would obey the laws, they would pay the taxes, uh, they would pray for those in authority, uh, but they would not say the Pledge of Allegiance. The Pledge of Allegiance was Caesar is Lord. Now, understand that the Romans were fine to let Jesus be among the other gods in their pantheon. Christians couldn't do that. Jesus is not one among many gods. He is the exclusive God whom we serve and him only. We cannot give our allegiance to any other God. We can't give what is God's to Caesar. And they were thrown to the lions, hundreds of them, thousands of them. Remember also in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 4, Peter and John are preaching and the authorities come and arrest them and forbid them to speak anymore in this name. And Peter and John respond, we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. Um, the authorities were asking them to give to Caesar what belonged rightfully to God. And that is the preaching of the word, the evangelism of, of the people. That was something that uh, the Lord had commanded. He didn't say do this as long as the government approves of it. They'll find a way to do it. And so you have that conflict. It's all the way through the Bible in both Testaments. And we find it in uh, contemporary life as well. Um, if you go to uh, China, you know, they have a one-child policy. You can have one child. Uh, after that, there's going to be consequences, and consequences, consequences are pretty severe. 
India has a two-child policy. Now, you understand why China and India have two-child policies. Half the population of the world lives in those two countries. I think uh, we don't need any more of us. So um, India has a two-child policy. If you have a third child, that means that you know, the parents are not eligible for government jobs. The third child is not eligible to attend certain colleges or universities. Uh, so th those are fairly serious consequences. And so the solution that's offered is just abort the child and you won't face these consequences. And so there, uh, you're faced with the choice. Do you abort the child in honor of the government? Or do you keep the child in honor of God? Now, we don't have conflicts like that here where we live in the good old USA. Um, we have a lot to be thankful for. We live in a great country. But we must be careful not to equate patriotism with allegiance to Christ. And that can be hard for us. That nations rise and nations fall. But Christ has purchased for God from every tribe and nation people who will follow him. And the prophecy declares that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. This is where our allegiance lies. So let me go one step further and connect this to politics specifically. Giving to God what is God's also means that you owe him your messianic hope. What I mean by that is this. Your hope for America has to be not in politics, but in Jesus. For example, you know, how do conservatives say we're going to save America? Well, if we have good politicians and good laws and good enforcement of laws and keep the government off people's backs, we'll have good people and a good society. The religious version goes something like this. If we have honest people in office who believe in God and God's laws, then America will be good and come back to Christ. That is, the political system, if it has the right people in it, will usher in the kingdom of Christ. That's according to some people. What about the other side? How do, how, do, how do liberals say they're going to save America? By government policy and education and changing oppressive social structures, they say we can set people free to pursue the good that is within them. But that is also a promise that goes against the gospel because our problems are much deeper than our social structures. We are born morally corrupt. Even with the best environment, and the best education, and the best laws, we would still be corrupt. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. This means that a distinction is to be made between what we owe Caesar and what we owe to God. So, is Jesus advocating the separation of church and state, of God and government? As I mentioned before, this had never been heard of. And so this leads us to a third point, and that is this. The God and government have distinct but overlapping roles. 
Here's where it gets a bit sticky. There are all sorts of difficult issues that aren't going to be solved by what Jesus said in verse 21. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. You know, some people say you can't legislate morality. Really? What are you doing if you say that murder is against the law? Uh, You are legalizing or you are legislating morality. You're making a legal statement, a moral statement at the same time. So this is an example of a time when the roles of God and the roles of government overlap. It's impossible to totally separate religious or moral claims from government and society. And on the other hand, this passage indicates that Jesus did not have a vision for the state that meant it must be ruled by all the laws of God so that God's laws were identical with the laws of the state. Jesus was not a a, a theonomist, meaning he's not saying that rendering under Caesar is the same as rendering unto God, that church and state are the same. It used to be that through most of history, um, but now we live in a country where um, there is separation, but there is also overlapping. If you read the Constitution, you'll see that the most cited reference is the book of Deuteronomy. So there is influence, even though we are not a Christian nation per se, uh, meaning that the that the laws of the church or the laws of the Bible are enforced by the, uh, the civil government. Well, you know, there are some advantages and disadvantages of um, God and government overlap. And I'm going to conclude by illustrating this from, from my life. So uh, you may find this insightful or, or not, but here it is. Um, some of the advantages of the overlap of God and government. Um, growing up, I didn't go to Sunday school or church a whole lot, um, but I did go to school. And in school, in the early years, uh, the, the lower grades, you, know, you had the Pledge of Allegiance, you had the singing of My Country Tis of Thee, and you had a prayer before lunch. You know, somebody would lead a prayer, and after lunch, uh, there would be a, a Bible story so uh, I absorbed a, a lot of Bible just by going to school and uh, absorbing it from culture. Um, so there's a lot of advantages in that, but there were some disadvantages. I didn't make a profession of faith in Christ uh, until I was 17 years old, um, nor had I been baptized, nor had I attended many church services. But I still believed that I was a Christian. And the logic went something like this. I wasn't a Jew, a Muslim, or a Hindu, or an adherent to any other religion. And besides that, I was an American, and a Southern American at that. So being a Christian and being an American were synonymous with me. I assumed that I would spend eternity in heaven because I was a good citizen of the USA. That's a big disadvantage. 
uh, because I was resistant to the gospel message, because I didn't see a need for it. I was a good person, validated by my citizenship and the fact that I paid taxes even though it was only sales tax at that time. And I obeyed the laws for the most part. Sometimes I'd edge over the speed limit a little bit. And uh, praying for the officials didn't really cross my mind, but you know, two out of three is not bad. I looked at myself as someone who hadn't done anything that would bring everlasting condemnation. You know, not in my mind, I was a good person, a good citizen, an American, therefore a Christian. So God and government have overlapping roles, but they also have distinct roles. So let us never assume that we are assured a place in the kingdom of God because we are citizens of this country. And you think, what a ridiculous thing to think. Who in the world would think something like that? Well, the guy telling you this used to believe that. And I've known people throughout my life who have also believed that. Let us never assume that rendering unto Caesar is always the same thing as rendering unto God. Now I want to wrap up with this. You may be a good tax-paying citizen of the United States, a devoted patriot. You may be a good person, someone with high morals. I'm sure you are. You may even pray for the President and the Congress and the Supreme Court. That's good. I hope you do. But what I'm saying in all of this comes down to this. You may be doing a good job of rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But rendering unto Caesar is not the same thing as rendering unto God. So what does God want from you? He wants what belongs to him. He wants what his image is stamped upon. Herein lies the crux of the issue. This is not merely a call to pay your tithes and your taxes, as it might seem to be on the surface. It's a call to give your life to God. It's a call to give your full allegiance to him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we acknowledge that there are some things in life that are, are just hard for us. Um, in particular, the issues we've uh, been looking at this morning with um, God and government, uh, religion and politics, uh, that always causes heat uh, wherever it is discussed. And yet we are called to live as ambassadors of your kingdom while we are living in this earthly kingdom where we live now. Sometimes it's not really hard at all. It seems like the, the two overlap very well. But when an effort time comes, where it's clear that rendering unto you um, 
is going to be something that the government might require. Help us to remember that our ultimate allegiance, our primary allegiance, is to you and to you alone. Through Christ we pray. Amen.